Welcome to season three of the Change the World podcast. I'm your host, Sivya Kohn. As CEO of 14 Minds, a marketing agency that works exclusively with Jewish nonprofits, I am a firsthand witness to the incredible physical, spiritual, and emotional services these organizations provide to our community. However, I also see the many challenges they face along the way. This season, I'll be speaking to incredible nonprofit leaders who haven't let any obstacles get in the way of their mission to change the world. Hi, good morning, everybody. Thanks for listening. Today, I am sitting with Arye Friedner. Arye, thank you for joining me. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. It's great to meet you. Likewise. So a little tiny bit of background. Um, I interviewed Joe Klein a couple weeks ago or a month ago at this point. And at some point after our recording, he was like, you know who you have to interview next. Like, you just must. And he told me about Arye, and I was like, all right, this sounds absolutely amazing. This sounds like something we really haven't talked about. Um, so I'm going to let you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background and then we can get into today's topic. I hope it's as amazing as, uh, as Joe says, Joe is definitely, Joe is an amazing guy. And, um, if there's any reason why it's not talked about it, it's it might be because it sounds boring sometimes. So we'll try to be as, as excited and lively as possible. My name is Ari Friedner. I grew up in New Jersey in Cherry Hill. My family was kind of like conservative. I went to a Schefter day school until I got kicked out in seventh grade. And I ended up at a small Orthodox school, Pulitz day school. And then I went to a school which is no longer. It was called Mays in South River, New Jersey, before I went to Nitivarie in Israel. One of my 12th grade rabbis, actually it was my ninth grade rabbi, convinced me when I was in 12th grade that I should go to Yeshiva. Otherwise, I wouldn't have gone to Yeshiva. And that started off my course of being plugged into Judaism and leading to nonprofits and things like that. So how did you officially get into the nonprofit sector as a career? Well, I, I didn't join non, I didn't know what nonprofit was. I, I simply, I never knew what I wanted to do. I was one of those kids that saw profession as like, there were a bunch of options on a checklist and none of them seemed interesting. So I was like, should I do this? And I don't want to. I, it kind of seemed like everybody else was choosing things because they had to, but I wasn't compelled by anything. My, fr my friend always wanted to be a dentist. Ironically, he's, uh, he's now a consultant, but whatever. <laughs> I didn't know what I wanted to do. When I went to yeshiva, it was a relief because otherwise I would have gone straight to college and I, I was very afraid of not figuring it out. After being in yeshiva for enough time to really convince me that Judaism was awesome because I was certainly not, I was not convinced. I was skeptical that Judaism was meaningful at all growing up. And then once I figured that out, it was just one step after the other. I, I had a, a rabbi, Rav Arya Varon, and he gave us one class. I don't know if I was in uh, first year or second year studying in Israel. And he asked us to compliment ourselves and to think about our skills. And then he taught us that the things that we have going for us, the things that we do well, are probably what Hashem wants us to use in life to make an impact. So I, I, dis I discovered on some self-reflection, that I was good at communicating. I, I enjoyed communicating. And I found a knack at understanding complex topics and being able to include other people in them to explain what they were to others. My, my skill set is kind of based off introversion, despite being an NCSY for so many years and having all these students and always talking Torah with them, I, I really believe in processes and systems. And I like sitting in front of my computer and figuring things out. But I also want to help people. So I, I was it was a struggle for a long time. How do I do both? So here he really gave me on a silver platter. You could be completely focused on building systems and processes. But because of that, it could lead to millions and millions of dollars being raised and distributed to now we have 77 beneficiaries doing an unbelievable impact around the world. So I want to be a part of the impact too, but this is a great place for me. Wow. So I definitely want to talk more about that, but let's back up a little bit and, and just kind of introduce the topic of systems, which is how I was introduced to you. And I was very intrigued because I work with a lot of nonprofits for whose systems is, I'm going to say a foreign word, so <laughs> they wouldn't know what to even do with. Um, so I'm curious, like how you got into it? Is it something you've always focused on that's come naturally to you? In a way, yes. And in a way, severely no. Um, when when I was a kid, I, my grandma used to tell me, and this is, I wouldn't have known otherwise, that I was the kind of kid that I, when I would walk into a, a room or a building, I would just look around. And I still do that now. I'm always, 
I'm always kind of looking around and observing and, and I intuit good design and, and clumsy design, you know, thoughtful things and not thoughtful things. And I'm always exploring what, why was this done that way? So my brain kind of takes me in that direction towards patterns. And that was the good half. The bad half is that I had a horrible, horrible memory. My, my, I just remember specifically in my teenage years when I started to really, you know, it's when you leave the movie theater and you don't know where your keys are. And that's when it picked up on me that I, when I picked up on it, that at 17 years old, I should probably have a better memory than that. And I, my whole life was that like things were all over the place. So I, I leaned towards design, but I didn't really have any skills to implement it. And I remember things kind of turned around when I read an article about uh, memory training. At some point in my life, I read this article. I, it may have been geared towards like, like elderly, but I found it interesting. And there were a few tools that it said of how you can improve your brain power and improve your memory. And one of the things that it said that totally unlocked my outlook was that there's something called external memory also. Like just like on a computer, it can house a certain amount of memory on the computer and then you plug something in and it accesses that as well. It's the same thing with, with, with rabbis. I have some of my own rabbinim that are unbelievable uh, scholars, but when I call them and I ask them a question, sometimes they'll say, great question, you know, let me get back to you. And I know that they're looking it up, but their expertise is in knowing exactly where to find it. So when I, when I realized that external memory can also be a part of my own skill set, I started learning and getting mentorship on how do I do that too. And I, I essentially built an entire self-management system and I started learning about um, company management and team management based off that idea of if you, if you build enough tools in front of you, all you need to do is anchor one thing in your brain to one thing outside of your brain. As long as that anchor exists, then you can build on the thing that's external as much as you want and you know exactly where to find it, kind of like knowing which book to take off the shelf because you know the answer is in there somewhere and the index will take you to the right chapter, the right line, and then you know. That is really interesting. I've definitely never thought of it that way, but can you now make the leap for me? How do we connect that concept to systems for nonprofit organizations? Yes. So I believe that most or all nonprofits have a system. They will certainly tell you that they have a system. It's not so much about having a system. The world is, is built on the concept of systems, uh, especially in Judaism. We know that Hashem created the world in a way where things are in a proper order. Everything lives in order. The question is, do we have a good system? Is our system helping us accomplish what we want to accomplish? And what I found is that nonprofits in particular, although I, I do have to add like a huge grain of salt, I've only worked for nonprofits. I can't tell you that businesses, uh, that for-profits are better or worse at anything. I can only tell you about my experiences, but in those experiences, I've seen that systems are taken for granted and we could get a lot more out of what we're doing if we put the right effort into putting systems in front of us that would help us accomplish what we know we have to accomplish. So are you saying that even if you, an organization doesn't intentionally implement a system, they just have a system just by nature of running the organization? I, I think so. I think systems... Systems, in a way, are everything that we do. We, we act and think based off impulses and background and experiences. The question is, who's in control of designing your system? Either you're going to control your system and you're going to do it with the right input the right way, or the system is going to be essentially designed by everything else around you, often by accident. So... Do you want to be on top of your system and make sure that it's working for you? Or do you want to work for the system that just happens to be in place because of the people that you have involved? Okay, so that makes a lot of sense. So what we're really talking about is being intentional with your systems as opposed to having them in the first place because you do whether you like it or not. Well, that's definitely one part of it. There's, there's more to it. I would say the first step is being intentional. The, the good news is I, I do think a lot of I think most or all nonprofits do have that down. I mean, if anything, we know what we're trying to accomplish. If anything, sometimes it's our intention and our passion that sometimes trips us up because we think that's all there is to it. But the systems need to be need to be intentional. Yeah. 
So can you describe what that might look like? Like, it's, you know, for someone who isn't a nonprofit organization and they do want to start taking their systems very seriously and using them more intentionally to grow, what does that look like? Sure. I'm, I'm half laughing because I have a lot of acronyms. When I, when I try to figure out how to explain something, I, I just naturally uh, incline to building some kind of an acronym, acronym to make it uh, easier to understand. I actually learned that tool from uh, Revis and Lori Palatnik. If you listen to her classes, everything she has is acronyms all over the place. <laughs> so I, I think a good way, a good way to know if your system is helping you really accomplish what you want to accomplish is if it activates what I call the four eyes. There's four eyes of a good system. And, and just to clarify for a moment, a, a system, let's like define it for a moment. I, I, there's probably a million definitions for system, but I, I think a system is an organized approach to using the resources available to you to reach your goal. That's a system, right? So there, all of those things are a spectrum. Are we reaching our goal or not? Are we using our resources or not? Is our approach organized or not? So there's no yes or no of systems. You're going to be somewhere on the spectrum, but that's what a system is. So the four eyes of a good system start with, with intention. You, you have to know that you're building something because you want to build it. You have to know what your goal is for your nonprofit. You know, it, it's important as Jewish nonprofits to really embrace this because my Rebbe, Ravamos Luban, taught me that when Judaism started, right, the first, let's say, call it the first nonprofit. I, I can't prove that. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> We're def- definitely a profitable people. We give a lot of tzedakah, bar Hashem. If Judaism was was the first nonprofit, the very first thing Hashem did when he took us out of Mitzrayim, when we turned from a family into a people, was that he gave us a Seder. Right? He wanted to teach us that if you have a goal to reach, you have to know what it is and you have to have a process to reach it. The world until that point was sort of it going in a circle, right? January, February, and March, back to January, and you're back where you started. But when we started to act as a people, that circle turned into a spiral that you always come back to the same place, but now you're one level higher than you were last time. The question is, are you really higher? Are you really pushing yourself forward? Do you know where the spiral is going? So that's the beginning is having that intention. That's, that's number one. And, and by the way, the, the, the trick is to consider these four eyes as you go through them and you have to ask yourself, okay, are, are we doing these things? Is my nonprofit doing these things? Do I think Ever, we're doing it. Does everybody think we're doing it? That, and that's the number two. That's the second I is inclusive. A big mistake, and it's not, it's not an intentional mistake. You know, nonprofits generally are trying to do great things. But a big mistake that I often see is they're not inclusive, especially if you're big, if you have a lot of people on your team, you have like mega staffs, dozens or hundreds of people. Oftentimes, the system is built by people in a boardroom. You know, the top executives who know what their goals are. And so they'll tell people, here's our key metrics and here's how we need you to approach it. By the time it gets all the way down the line, it seems out of touch. They didn't feel like they were involved. It doesn't necessarily reflect what they believe, which means they're not motivated anymore. If we want to run nonprofits, we want excited people. We need to be excited. So one of the most difficult parts about building a system at all or making decisions or doing anything in a nonprofit is that balance between vision and empathy. We know from the top what we want to accomplish, but are we really including everybody on our team in a way that they're going to continue to be as motivated as we need them to be to get it done? And are we willing to sacrifice, in theory, what we think the vision should be to make sure that the nonprofit overall truly will reach that goal? There's going to be compromises along the way. And obviously, this is one reason why systems sometimes aren't good, because leadership isn't always willing to be empathic, or they don't necessarily know how to be empathic be scary, you know, because you can't listen to everybody's ideas because then you don't have your vision anymore. That's really, really, really tough. So the systems really kind of bleed into a lot of other areas of challenges of growth for a nonprofit organization. Like what you just addressed is like a, a big leadership struggle that, that many visionaries have and many nonprofit leaders specifically have. So it's interesting because like, it sounds to me like in the process of applying the system, you also kind of have to work through some pretty significant I don't want to say issues, but factors. Yes, that is that is accurate. And we can talk just for the sake of clarity, we can go through the four eyes and afterwards we can talk more about what, what are the pains? Why can't we do this? Even when we know it, 
it doesn't mean we're going to be able to to do it. And there's real reasons why. There's there's reasons why these things aren't obvious, and there's reasons why even when they are obvious, they're really hard to do, and they're very understandable. And that's one of them: is that this is not easy. It's not easy to do this. Uh, I think we we make an unfortunate assumption that we can draw a line straight from our passion to the impact. And unfortunately, there's a lot. Not unfortunately, that's really the wrong word. The truth is, there's a lot of other stuff to do. Yeah. And I think what happens sometimes is that we lo ligmor. We forget that your job isn't to do everything. We get excited about doing everything and moving too fast, but we need to focus on the second part of the statement, which is, I may have gotten that wrong, but essentially you don't have permission to not try. Don't be perfect. You're not going to be perfect. You have to try, but trying means there's an effort and there's a process. And sometimes it's, it, it takes a little bit of time, but it's it's definitely worth it. Okay, so that's number two. And by the way, it's super ironic. There, there's an amazing book called Uncommon Service that talks about the very vague lines in between your team and your clients, your customers and your staff. Both are really interchangeable in a lot of ways, right? Who is your customer? If you're on the top of the ladder of, of any company, you have donors and you have board and you have the people that you're impacting and then you have your team. They're, they're all customers in a way because they're getting something out of it. And they're all staff in a way because, you know, going to Starbucks and try ordering a drink and not using their language, they'll correct you, right? The customer isn't always right. You can't say large. They'll say, oh, you mean tall, right? They've trained their customers to be a part of their staff to build the culture that they want. So what's ironic is that nonprofits care so much about the people that they're impacting, but so often you see that the people who are on the teams aren't cared for because they're not included. They're not included in the development of the system and the decisions that they make because the people on the top sometimes make the mistake to think that their vision needs to be upheld no matter what in order to make our final impact. But what about the impact of the people in between? That, that really has to be a part of it. That's number two. Number three is that this part is easier to imagine, but ironically harder to fulfill. Number three is informative. Your systems have to inform you on how you're doing. You have to build your process in a way where if something goes wrong or something goes right, you can figure that out so that you could repeat it or improve it if necessary. So systems have to be understandable. They have to be transparent. And you have to go back to them too. You have to go back and evaluate them. You know, one of the, um, going back, well, we can outline it if we have time, the reasons why, why systems are difficult to implement. One of those reasons is because people, I, my, my personal feeling, my experience of having had these conversations and work with a lot of people is that we make the mistake in thinking that we have to choose between sharpening the axe and chopping down the tree. And so if you'd sit and sharpen your axe all day, the tree's not going anywhere. So let's start chopping. Obviously, that's not the way it works. Obviously, you need to do both. And if you're asking me, I, I, I tend to uh, come from the line of thinking that if you sharpen your axe for nine hours instead of two hours, it's going to take less swings. Some people just want to start swinging. But there's no question that you can do both. So we have to build our systems to be informative, which means trying to be informed by them, meeting about them and talking about them. My wife has joked for years that we call nonprofits organizations. And it seems that the root of organization is to be organized. <laughs> and and they, they very often seem to not be because we... We, we fool ourselves by thinking that impact is more significant somehow than being organized as if they can't go along and they have to go along. So that's number three. And so again, intentional, inclusive, informative. And number four is they have to be implemented. And how many times have we gone into a training session and talked about our plan, and they didn't do it because we got too busy, right? It's the simplest part of them, of all these four, but it obviously matters. 
to work with us on that specific component of our system. We said we need help because we know exactly what we want to do. We know what we're doing now that isn't working, but we somehow can't change. And we uh, coined a term for this called chailing, which is chasing your tail. Like in nonprofits, sometimes you always feel like you're spending so much time having the same conversations, going over the same things, but you know in theory what to do, but you have to implement it. And it's easier said than done. So so that's the test to know if you have a, a system that's really working well. Is, is it intentional? Is it inclusive? Is it informative? And is it actually being implemented? So I want to talk about your personal experience in implementing systems. Let's start with the good, because I always like to start with the good. You know, what the positive changes you've been able to uh, to accomplish. But also I want to talk about, I'm not going to say the bad or, or the hard, but the challenges that I think are, you know, any any kind of change comes with challenge. So I definitely want to get into that as well. So, but, but let's start with the positive. Talk, let's talk about, I'm sure you've accomplished a lot and have seen what systems can really do for organizations. So let's start with that. Sure. Well, actually, only because you gave me permission earlier, if I may flip the script. Of course. I like starting with challenges. I don't see see them as negative. My personality, I have an interesting personality when it comes to positive and negative. Some people think I'm incredibly positive and some people think I'm incredibly negative. And it depends on it depends on what role you take in the team, like how I work with you, because I am 100% positive. But because of that, when I find something that has to be fixed, I focus on it like a million percent. So if you're a part of the team that is helping me focus on the negative thing, you think that I'm completely consumed with negative only because I'm trying to get it to another level. So when it comes to why we are here, why we can't do this, what the challenges are, why this isn't obvious, I don't see them as negatives at all. I think there are a lot of really great positives uh, in the nonprofit world that kind of create these, uh, these issues. I think if we understood them a little bit better, it might help the rest of the context flow and, and be more understandable. And obviously, I have, it's not an acronym. I knew the last one wasn't an acronym either. It was just the four I's. Here I have the four P's, the four P's of, of the challenges for nonprofits. Marketing also has four P's. <laughs> oh, great. Well, there's only so many letters, you know, it's gonna, this, this will be the, the four P's of systemization until we change it. We can come up with new letters. So there are real reasons why we have trouble. So we shouldn't feel bad if we feel like the systems aren't tremendous. Number one is, and I think these are in order of difficulty, meaning ah. not, not that they could be difficult in different ways for different organizations, but kind of like the natural flow of how hard I have to work to, to make this better. Number one is pressured funding, which ironically is the first one. This is usually a really big problem. But essentially, if you have more money, the problem is solved. Like, it's simple, right? The problem is that we only have so much money. We know that we have to reach our goals. So we're going to invest the money in programs and people that are going to get the work done. And if it takes more time and energy and money and people to make sure you're focusing on the systems, well, you may not reach the impact. And the truth is, this is a real stage of nonprofits. Before I came to Daily Giving, I was a founding director of my own nonprofit, it's called Torah Institute Beyond Campus. We accomplish a lot of incredible things. One of the biggest challenges for me in being a founding director was that I just I didn't really enjoy the experience of not having the bandwidth to do everything the right way. It was too hard. So a lot of nonprofits are small. The problem is when you have big nonprofits and they have the budget and they're not investing in it, that's when you have to try to start th thinking differently, right? We're not always pressured for funding. Sometimes we are, sometimes we're not, but we often have a pressured for funding mindset. That's number one. The second one I alluded to this, I call it passion bias. I mentioned it before when it comes to chopping down the tree. We just want to get it done, right? We're biased to think that we have to override systematic thinking by taking action, right? Action over strategy, as opposed to saying, let's do both. But it also impacts the people that we hire and the things that we ask people to do. We often hire people that have skills at doing. But how often do we look, we, we consider a guy who I, I often, when I'm talking about things like this, and I'll, and I'll get to this later, where I'll, I'll point out to you that I feel like I'm being nerdy, because I get excited about things that I think might be nerdy. We don't necessarily get excited about hiring people like that or giving projects to people like that, because they're not the people who are in front of people and making things happen. But that's a problem, right? We have to have the right balance, balance of time, balance of people, balance of projects. That's number two, pressured funding and passion bias. Number three, we also touch upon this, is, and this is 
this is really hard, way harder than funding, is the path of least resistance. Nobody wants to push against the reason why it's difficult to do this right. There are personalities and relationships that get in the way. And sometimes to make something better, you have to have like conflict resolution. Or maybe the wrong person is somewhere along the line and we just don't want to go there. So the path of least resistance often forces us to do things at 80% of what should be our approach because we feel like we have no choice. And sometimes you can't overcome that. And that's a real reason why either we don't try or, or why we try and it doesn't get done. The fourth reason, and this one is it's in some ways the hardest, but kind of like implementation, like it should be the easiest, is that we're not privy to the reality of systems and the things that we experience as being successful. We see something else go really well or look really good. And we're like, wow, why can't we do that? And so we jump to what looks like the conclusion, but we never really ask, well, how did you do that? What did it take? What were your resources? What was your approach? Right? So for example, this story, I, I shared a story on LinkedIn recently about my encounter with Charles Matthews in the airport. A lot of people saw this story. I'm joking around that I, people finally know who I am in Cleveland. Um, I've lived in Cleveland since since 2008, so 15 years. And I was in an airport and I sat next to some guy and we started talking. He asked me if I was Jewish. I obviously look Jewish. I, if you can see me, I'm, people are listening to this, but I'm wearing a black suit and I wore kippah and I had a black hat on at the airport. So he said, are you Jewish? And I said, yeah. And we started talking about religion and spirituality. And the guy was like, not only was he like really authentic, but he really knew his stuff. He was quoting scriptures and he was talking about morality and improving the world for people. And we didn't really talk about daily giving much at all, by the way. So I hope people know what daily giving is. Daily giving has almost 14,000 members who are donating $1 a day, resulting in, in the next 12 months, probably over $6 million to charity. 92% of daily givers give $1 a day. We have proven that you can make a huge impact by doing one small thing, right? We've, we've always said it. We always feel that it's true. We're really doing it. And we, by we, I mean 14,000 people are doing it. So I really felt like this guy, Charles, would uh, enjoy <laughs> potentially being a daily giver. So he asked me where the money went. And I told him it's going to Jewish causes. And he whipped out $800 cash from his pocket and gave it to me. It was unbelievable. Wow. wow. And it's a nice story, right? But it's way better on, Link better on LinkedIn. Because <laughs> in the moment, I realized... I had to take a picture. If I don't take a picture, you know, no pick didn't happen. No one's going to care. It's just going to be another story. So in the moment I realized I had to take a picture and I realized it because I have been in many situations in life where there were cool things that happened and I didn't take a picture either because I didn't want to or because I didn't feel like I wanted to get anything out of the moment. I just wanted to be there. But I had spent weeks with my team talking about stories and capturing them. And I sent a voice note to two people on our team. We have, we have an amazing growing team. Hannah Butcher is our director of communications, and she's also a fantastic copywriter. And Aura Snow Rosenfeld is our uh, social media manager. And we've been talking about stories and how to share them to inspire daily givers and to inspire the world. So I knew exactly what to do. I took a picture. I sent it to them. I sent a two-minute voice note about the whole experience. They wrote the whole story. We wrote the hook. You know, we did the three lines. So people had to open it up. And boom, I, last I checked, like almost half a million people have seen this story. It's wow. been shared all over the place. And people come up to me and they say, wow, what an amazing story. No one says, wow, you have a great system in place. <laughs> no. If we didn't have that system in place, if we hadn't talked about it and we hadn't gone through that practice and then executed, the story never would have been known by, by anybody. And so when, if people are, you know, if people would see that story and they would say, how do we get that kind of press for ourselves? How do I find, how do I luck into a good story? Well, I can't answer that question. I don't know how to luck into stories, but I can tell you that if you don't have the systems in place, you're not gonna be able to capitalize on when they happen. And so that is another reason why we don't invest in systems because we see the end result and we think that it's magic or we come up with whatever conclusions we think, 
but we're, we forget that there's a huge piece of it. And probably the biggest piece is, you know, the rest of the iceberg under the water, the thing that we, we've been waiting for and we've been planning to execute. And then we actually follow through on the system. So, so that's why it doesn't happen. It's not because anybody says down with systems and, and even the people who are really passionate about chopping down the tree, they're not like, I hate ax sharpeners. They all believe in it, but we get stuck in, in these biases and these uh, unfortunate mistakes. And, and that's what leads to us, I think, not doing it in the best way that we can. So how do you help in those situations where there, where there are those biases and you do see that like stuckness, for lack of a better word, how, how can you come in and kind of get past that? That's a really good question. I think, to be honest, there's two approaches, right? If you're, if you're asking this question organizationally, like what do we do? Well, someone has to be able to come in and help. There, there could be somebody on the team who's oriented at figuring these things out. It's a, big, it's a big puzzle. It's like taking a puzzle and dumping it out in front of a bunch of people and they've never seen a puzzle before. They only saw the front of the box and they're like, well, how do we do this? They'll figure it out. But there are some people who like, they do puzzles in their sleep. And if you get that guy in, he can tell you, like my grandma Tommy, we're at number two on the grandma stories for the day. <laughs> you put all the colors. Start with the edges. You start, you start with the edges. <laughs> you put the colors in, in different groups. And then if there's any noticeable pictures, like, okay, you have eyes and you have hands. There is a way to do that. And if someone could probably just tell you that, right? You could figure it out on your own too. Like you, you don't have to be that smart to build a good system. But if you can get someone involved who's done it before, then great. And if you're talking, so that's on an organizational level, on a personal level, or on an organizational level, if you're the person to do it, start with yourself, self-management. I, I actually had no idea that what I had been doing for a long time, for a long time was oriented in systems. I thought I was just doing outreach, right? <laughs> I was like, okay, there are teens in Cleveland who want to be connected to God and spirituality, and my job is to help them. How do I do it? I wasn't like, what's the systematic approach? I was just trying to figure out how to do something. And it just so happened to be that what I was doing was thinking about it psychologically. What are they going through? What's been working? If you look at the students that are the most successful, talk to them, find out what worked and what didn't work. Okay, can we repeat that? How do we make sure that when we build programs, we have all those things in mind? How do we verify that we did it the right way? Like, that was just the natural thought process that I had. And it turned out I built this process for, for doing outreach. And, and now I talk to people all the time. I just yesterday, someone that I know from Cleveland who was a student, and now he's going into the world of outreach, who is going to dedicate his summer to doing outreach on a meaningful program, called me yesterday. And we spent 20 minutes talking about one small nuance about his program and what he's going to do. I do that all the time because I've built up a lot of these relationships in the world of outreach. And I can help a lot of people move forward because I can help them understand how to think about it systematically. I don't know anything about you or your student, but I can help you break it down and understand what to do next. I have forgotten what we were talking about and your question. <laughs> I say that out loud, by the way, because I wanted to prove that when I say I don't have a good memory, I'm a million percent true. I legitimately have a horrible memory. I have a kind of memory that when I leave the room, everything in the previous room stays there. 100% of the time, when I work with people and they say, you should do this, or can you do this? If I can't take a note right away, I'll tell them, if you don't send me a note, I'm going to forget when I walk in the other room. And I do 100% of the time. There's a system. That's exactly right. That's a system. Okay. No, I, I think we covered that one. I want to make sure we get in a few more important points. Sure. So I, I just want to go back because we touched on the fact that you were brought into daily giving to, you know, use your skill set. And I would love to hear a little bit about sure. what you were able to accomplish there and how how they were able to grow from those processes and systems that you implemented. Sure. Uh, great. Uh, thanks for reminding me. So I'll tell you one of it's a combination of like one of the things that I'm most excited about, but also kind of one of like the scariest things. And it makes sense that those two things go hand in hand. Right. So last year when I, I joined, I'm, I'm only almost more than a year in. And just to clarify, like what I do, I mentioned why I was convinced that it was meaningful. And that's what I'm doing. The goal is to give out $100,000 a day, raving at $14,000 a day right now. Amazing. And the way to do that includes marketing and recruiting and fundraising, getting people on board. But that's not my main role. My main role is to take that vision and to make sure that the team at large can implement it. 
And that includes using all these processes and systems to make sure we're doing it the right way, to measure it properly, and to predict and to prepare for the obstacles that are going to come. One of those elements of preparation was that our tech had to be upgraded, right? We had a website that needed improvements. We didn't have officially a CRM, right? Our CRM was just the back end of the donor system. It just happened to have data there. But there was no connection between the data and the communication between the daily givers. That's a big one for nonprofits. Yeah. It, that could be a whole other conversation in and of itself. Yeah. It, and another day. <laughs> and that's why it was so daunting to me because when I was in NTSY, they actually hired a team of people to build their own CRM. I, I Dan Hazoni led the project. There were a lot of other people involved. He now works with Aish Global, but he, they built the CRM from scratch because it's so important to have a central database that helps you maintain all your information and use it effectively. And it was hard. It was really hard to do that. And, and, and they included people like me often in being inclusive and making sure they were doing it the right way. So daily giving had the same challenge. How do we build a database that holds all of our information, obviously with security, because we have, you know, there's credit cards and things that we don't have access to. All of it is encrypted. How do you, you know, simple challenge. We had about five to 10 people every day that were reaching out to us and asking for help with their accounts. I want to cancel my account. I want to double my account. You know, one of our favorite experiences is when someone is giving a dollar a day and they say, I want to give $5 a day because I'm married and I have three kids and I want to give $1 for everybody in my family. It happens more than you'd think. So we were getting these communications, but they were going to like multiple people on the team, right? Because the team, let me clarify for people who didn't listen to Dr. Jonathan's interview. Go back and listen. They should 100% go back and listen. Dr. Jonath is a full-time chiropractor on top of being a full-time volunteer for daily giving. He's a, he's a volunteer founding president. He works 80 hours a week, right? Which is not a real number. He just bas basically just doesn't sleep. And everybody else around him were part-time people who really were just chipping in. Even people who were being paid part-time were working way more than that. But things were kind of, you know, built haphazardly over a number of years. And we had to, you know, the way that I express it is, is an incredible TED Talk. I actually don't know what it's called, but there's a way of building systems empathically, which is unbelievable. I'll draw this back to CRMs in a second. You'll understand. There is a college campus that said, when we build our new dorm rooms, we don't want to make the sidewalks. We just want to make it all grass. And they kept video cameras on just over the public area where the grass was pointed downwards and they measured the walking paths of the individuals. And over time, they could see it because the grass where they would walk would begin to die and wear away. And people basically made their own paths. So instead of having like a blocky sidewalk, you had this twisty, turny, curvy path because students intuitively figured out, I leave this building and I often go to that building. I'm just going to go straight. But sometimes I go veer off to the left halfway. And a year later, the same people who built these buildings came in with pavement and they paved sidewalks around the paths that the students had made. So the sidewalk was like crazy looking, but it was exactly what they needed. Instead of making, you know, how often do you see sidewalks, but also there's dead grass because people take shortcuts. Zero shortcuts takes listening and paying attention to what the needs actually are. So I was presented that one of my tasks is going to be overseeing the implementation of our CRM. So I said, okay, which CRM are we using? And we had a particular CRM and I started asking, well, why? Why do we pick this one? And I asked every single person on the team, why do we need a CRM? Why do you need a CRM? What do you want to make sure is included in the CRM? And the more I talked to everybody on the team, the more I realized we really weren't ready. We really had to figure out what we had to accomplish, what we wanted to get done. And then I had to do a lot of research because it had been done for me for so many years. I had to look into all of them, what they do, what they don't do. Is it worth paying for this? Do we build it from scratch? And, and essentially, the long story short, although it's already gone long, we picked a CRM, which when I chose it, I had a conversation with the lead on the implementation of this CRM. And I told them in a vulnerable moment, which now I'm sharing, I said, this is either going to get me fired or it's going to cement me in this organization. 
And he said, don't worry, it's going to be awesome. And so far it's been awesome, but it was really scary because it's not cheap, right? And and just to be clear again, for people who don't know, when you give a dollar day to daily giving, 100% of that goes to our beneficiaries. We keep nothing. So all of our expenses, personnel, technology, we fundraise for that separately from a handful of private donors, a pretty large and growing amount of private donors. But if you're giving a dollar a day, it's a different fund. But that money that we raise, we still want to use intelligently. And I didn't want to just throw money at a CRM just for the sake of doing it. And it had to work. And it has to work for a while because we had 8,000 a day. Now we're giving 14,000 a day. We want to give 100,000 a day. And to get there, there's going to be a lot of little cracks in the system that if we don't find them soon enough, those cracks will begin to break the foundation and things will fall apart. And our hard work of growth won't matter because people will leave. Things won't go well. So that was like my first major, major project. So far, it's so good. Hopefully, it goes goes in that right in, in the right direction. And uh, over the past few months, there's been another similar project, which now we're in the process of beginning to implement, of like another significant challenge that we had we had faced for a long time. And it took a lot of conversations and listening and paying attention, research, brainstorming, and then a decision. And now very careful follow through to make sure that the new tool that we're now building is going to be built the right way. It's going to do what we wanted to do and it's going to work. And when I'm done that, I'll go to the next one. I'm just building one mini system after the next until we have a large framework of tools that do exactly what we need to do. So instead of people doing it. We have robots doing it. So the people that are involved that cost money can go to the next challenge and just get us to the next level, to the next level, and we can scale and grow. So if someone listening now either works for a nonprofit or runs a nonprofit or is involved with a nonprofit and is saying to themselves, this sounds like exactly what we need, what, would, what advice would you give them? How, how do they get started with something like this? That's a really great question. First of all, don't be discouraged. It's, it's, not, it's not easy. And I, I think one of the reasons why I've been successful in doing it is because I'm a little bit crazy when it comes to this stuff. Like if I didn't have a team around me of people who take action, I would sometimes get caught in the world of theology and, uh, and philosophy. So, so you you might need someone on your team like that. Or if you're somewhere in between, then you might be fine. But it starts with mentorship. Like I, again, I wouldn't have known any of this had I not stumbled upon an article and then met a lot of people along the way who got me from one step to the next. You know, R- Rabbi Berg, I mentioned Dan Hazoni from H Global. Rabbi Steve Berg, who's who's the CEO, he really opened my mind to this concept of how systems can play a role in a nonprofit. He just ran one session at one conference where he took five books and he said, here's my five favorite books, one, two, three, four, five. He gave us lessons from each one. And I was like, what just happened? I thought I was running a nonprofit. We could like read books about business philosophy and implement that and how we run what we're doing. And it changed everything because there's a whole world of knowledge out there. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. Things have been done. They've been proven to work. And they're also like really fun reads too. Like they're exciting. So (laughs) I have a Torah library and I have a business philosophy and business strategy library. And actually one of my favorite books in the world of systemization was recommended to me, not recommended to me. It was like thrust upon me with like great conviction by a man by the name of Dan Peck, who was a father, is a father of two teenagers that when they lived in Cleveland for a short time, they were passing through they were young and in and, and middle school and they were involved in NCSY. And now, thank God, they're awesome, healthy, happy people. Not that they weren't before. They've all they've this family has always been awesome, happy, and healthy. But now they're also very, very, very Jewish inclined. They're doing very well um, in one in seminary and one on campus, learning a lot and growing. And Dan, I noticed, is like a whiz at self-management and systems. He had a business in North Carolina that he was running, that he still runs remotely while living in Cleveland. He had started another Cleveland business 
that was using storage space in North Carolina being run by someone in Cleveland that he just touched upon. And he was always moving on to the next thing. He built a coal in North Carolina. Like he was doing all of these things and he had his finger on the pulse of everything that he was doing. So I asked him, I was like, how do you, how are you doing this? It turned out he was a CEO coach. I didn't realize. Yeah, and so he gave me like quarterly training. Like every quarter we sat for like two, three, four hours and went over, here's what you do next. What's your, what are you struggling with? Here's how you overcome. And it was those sessions, quarter after quarter after quarter, that taught me how to do things. It gave me the confidence that I could do it. And it unlocked things like certain books and, and thought processes that now put me in a position where I can help others do it. So, so in any case, one, what I was saying about, I think I was mentioning spirituality, the book that he threw upon me is called Essentialism. And he told me, that that book convinced him to be religious wow. because it talks about the most essential thing in life. And to him at the time, it meant spirituality and being connected to God. To me, at the time, I was already a, a religious person. And so the essentialism to me applied to my business outlook. So, so things, things like that are, can be life-changing and help us understand how to build good systems to run our nonprofit. They're out there for us. We just have to go find the smartest people we could find and ask them for help. Amazing. And I appreciate that, really. I think that is like practical advice at the same time motivational, which is a hard balance. Um, so before we sign off, I'm going to ask you to share your contact information for anyone who may want to reach out to you or learn more about this. But is there anything you wanted to share today that I did not get to? Because I know you do have a lot, a lot to share, but <laughs> our list of times, I want to make sure that we cover anything that we didn't get to yet. Yeah. Well, I, I, my, my brother joked with me when I told him I was being interviewed about systems. He, he asked me if they have enough time for the pre-podcast <laughs> and the post-podcast, because I do have a lot to say. It sometimes is my, is my, is my weakness. But um, I, I guess I would share one strong parting thought, which is when Noah came off the Teva, right? when Noah came off the ark after the flood and he was dutied with rebuilding the world, the first thing he did was he planted a vineyard. And in the Pasuk, it says, Vayichal, that Noah began and then he went to go plant the vineyard. And so the word Vayichal is not necessary. It could have just said he planted a vineyard. It says he began to then go plant the vineyard. And so Rashi explains that Vayichal comes from the language of, of Hulin, which means mundane. And he, he explains that he started with this, but he should have started with something else. He turned himself into someone on the level of being mundane, unholy. Because the first thing that he should have done wasn't a vineyard. There was something else more important for him to do. And if you read the story, you know that he grows grapes and he makes wine and he gets drunk and essentially some bad things happen because of that. And you see it from the beginning. He gets off the ark and he plants a vineyard and it looks like he just wants to get drunk. That, obviously, that's not what's happening. But Rashi says he should have done something else first. This shouldn't have been the first thing that he did. And a lot of the commentaries go on to explain, well, what did he do wrong? Was the other thing he should have done first? What was his intention? Surely God chose Noah for a reason. We know that God could have destroyed everybody and made a new person if he wanted. He chose Noah to repopulate the earth. And Noah was a big tzaddik, as the song says. So what was he trying to do? Don't tell me he just did it wrong. Some, something is missing. So again, Rashi just says he should have done something else. But there's so much missing from that explanation. So Revolba writes, that that's the whole explanation. When there's something that you're supposed to do first, but you do something else first instead, when you get the order wrong, that's called chulin. That's called living in the world of, of non-holy. Kedusha, holiness, to the contrast, is understanding that everything has its place. You do the first thing, and the second thing, and the third thing. And so I've been talking about balance, and that we can use the concept of systems to help us reach our goals. But even that way of expressing it makes it seem like it's kind of like a, uh, a necessary evil, so to speak. Like sometimes we have to take a break from the impact to make sure the impact happens. But the truth is, Hashem is our partner in getting done what we have to get done. And I believe that the proper approach is kind of like a scientific method of creating siyata 
How do we create divine providence? By doing the correct things. And sometimes the correct things include doing them in the right order, step by step. That's called Kedusha. So if we embrace this approach, we can be Kadosh in our work, which would mean that Hashem, who is Kadosh, will help us even greater. And so it's no surprise that systems help us, not just because the systems lead us to great results, but because the process of doing things the right way itself includes Hashem in a deeper way in what we're trying to accomplish. And perhaps that's why systems work, because Hashem is more present than an organized world where we do things in a misudar way, right? Last story, the altar of Kelm says that if you have a thread of pearls, you'd think that the pearls are the most valuable element of this thread. Let's say you have a necklace or a bracelet. But the altar of Kelm explains, as Revolva also brings this down, that the most valuable element on this thread are the clasps on both sides of it. Because if you didn't have them, then the pearls would very easily fall, right? So the value, the highest value that we can have to our important work, where the pearls are our impact and the people that we're reaching, sometimes the most valuable thing is having clasps on both ends, making sure we're doing it the right way to keep everything in order. Because then at least we'll have the pearls. It's a nice thing to talk about the pearls, but we don't, we don't want to lose them either. Wow. Unbelievable. Thank you so much. That was really a lot more than I expected to get, but it was absolutely incredible. I, I wish we could talk for another hour, but for anybody who is intrigued and then wants to learn more, which is kind of the point why why we just I wanted to start this conversation. Um, how can they reach you? What's the best way to get in touch? Arya Friedner, spelled with an I, A-R-I-E-H. You can find me on LinkedIn, reach out, happy to meet you. I I am full-time daily giving, which is like very full-time and over full-time that we have a lot to do. But I'm happy to field you know, conversations and help people move along. Our goal is to help nonprofits. We currently give money to 77 nonprofits. We give over $50,000 in 2023, over $50,000 to 77 beneficiaries. So wow. putting our, our money where our mouth is is what we do. And so I'm happy to help anybody to the extent that I can. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is a really great conversation. Thank you very much for your time. Be well. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Change the World podcast. If you have any feedback or an idea for my next episode, or if you're a nonprofit leader interested in learning more about how 14 Minds can help your nonprofit, I'd love to hear from you. Just send an email to tsivia at 14minds.com. For more nonprofit content, follow me on LinkedIn or visit 14minds.com. 